0: surpass and-
1: Everyone, and welcome to Berkeley Zen Center's Saturday lecture series, ongoing for decades. I have the good fortune to welcome our speaker today, all the way from Vallejo, Mary Mosin. <laughs> yes. hey, it's farther than people think.
0: Half an hour.
1: Uh, Mary began practicing here at BCC in 1988, and then she went to Tassajara in 1990 and practiced numerous practice periods and held numerous positions including Tenzo, one of the more difficult positions uh, there in our temple practice. She was ordained uh, by Sojin Roshi in 94 and then she was Shuso at Tassajara winter practice period in 1998 with Norman Fisher. She opened the Vallejo Zen Center in 2000 and was transmitted by Sojin in 2005. She had her mountain seat ceremony in 2008, formerly establishing her as the abbess of the Zen Center. She retired from a career as a labor lawyer on the labor side of the duality of labor and management. And she now does Dharma work with lawyers in a sitting group. Mary, thanks for coming today and let's hear about your practice.
0: So good morning, everybody. I wanted to start, I know that uh, there's been some discussion on the listserv and that Ross recently talked about sitting in a chair, so I want to add my two cents because unfortunately I'm an expert. <laughs> I uh, I uh, sprained my ankle at Tassahara a couple of times and then when I was Chisseau running the wake-up bell, I fell and I actually uh, fractured it. So I've done A lot of chair sitting, and then now I'm old, and arthritic, and I have chronic trochanteral bursitis. So, and uh, you know, I don't have much padding in my knees anymore, so I can't sit in a I can't sit on Seiza for more than a few minutes, and I can't sit cross-legged at all. So I'm back to chair sitting, uh, though I I have a, a bench. In uh, in Vallejo, which is wonderful well, for for sitting, because it it sets your it sets your hips correctly. And the first time I sat in it, it it felt really like almost like uh, sitting cross-legged. So I just thought I could I would add my two cents, and that's why I'm not wearing full robes and I'm not wearing an Oquesa So you could actually. See me. So this is this is really useful. You can you see? It's a it's a wedge shaped cushion. And so that's one thing, so that you can make sure your butt is higher than your knees. Even if you're not sitting on a wedge, just do it with uh, support cushions or something, depending. And if and if as you notice when I first sat down, if your feet don't hit the floor than support cushions. And if you're lucky, you have a wonderful 2 that takes care of you. Okay, the next thing I want to say, and this is sciatica avoiding technique, and it's also, if you do have it, it's helpful, which is that you sit a support cushion down in a diamond shape. So you're kind of sitting on the point of it, and that means that it misses your sciatic notch. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it supports your back, but it, your sciatic notch is like right in the in the middle of your um, the top of your thigh, like close enough. I don't know how the words you do. We have a nurse in the room, but that that will do. Anyway, if you have it, you know you know where it is. So that's always a good thing to do when you're sitting, and even on a zafu it doesn't matter, but um, like that. And then the other thing. Needs another kind of there's this stuff. The other thing is to have something to support the, the absolute base of your spine, your your coccyx, your tailbone. Alright, so that when you sit down, you use that to support you, and then you sit up straight from there. So you're not leaning back against the back of the chair, but that having that something at the base really makes a difference. And then when you sit down, I'm going to show you because you won't be able to see it so well, you really, really arch your back. And it's like you take as if you had a string right at the base of your spine. And it, it seeks the, the bottom of the base of the chair. So, And it's not lovely, but nobody's supposed to be looking at you. Also gotten shorter. Can you hold that for one second? There. And when I sit back, because I have something at the base of my spine, it real it feels supportive. It feels easy to sit like this. Except <laughs> my feet don't reach the floor. And. Uh, I'm not going to bother with it, but right now they're a little too high. One support cushion, don't don't bother. One support cushion would be about right probably, because my it feels like my hips and my knees are just about on a plane. And it's, it, is, it makes a big difference if they're not. Actually, I can do this. This is probably not a respectful way to treat a support cushion. I'm told that Suzuki Rush years ago, somebody used their foot to move a a Zabaton. Does everybody know what the Zabaton is, the big, big flat cushion that you're sitting on? Anyway, somebody moved one with their foot, and he turned to the person next to him and said, don't you ever move it with your foot. That's disrespectful, which it is. So I don't do that. (laughs) Support cushions are only sort of. Anyway, then the, the, you know—it is it's hard to sit in a chair. I, mean, I used to think, oh, those people sitting in a chair—they—they have—they're doing it the easy way. And then I sat in a chair, and I found out how difficult it is to to really sit up straight. It's it's hard, and if you don't sit up straight, your back gets sore very quickly. You find out. So, um, one thing that I learned was to really push up with the top of my head, you know, to honor the curve in my lower back, not to straighten my back like a board, not to straighten my neck, not to straighten my neck like a board, but to sit up really straight, pushing. As Mel said years and years ago, this is the first time I'd heard this. I've probably heard it 10 times, but he said, push up with your breastbone, not out. You know, not like he didn't say this. I say this. Not like the Marines. Not like that. But up, and it really makes it makes a tremendous difference. Your your shoulders naturally fall back and down when you're pushing up with your breastbone, and that my experience is that that's really really key when when I'm sitting in a chair, and sometimes my back starts hurting. And, uh, and I realize I'm not not slumping, slumping, but not really pushing up. And I do, and I hold it. And it feels artificial for the first few minutes. It feels like I'm not relaxed. I'm trying too hard or something. But if I just maintain that for a little while, my body settles into it. And my back stops hurting, or l- hurts less at any rate. This is, you know, Sashin evening, kind of hurting. And, you know, the hand position is the same, of course, but when you're sitting cross-legged, often your uh, your hands don't touch your thighs. Right? And when you're sitting um, in a chair, they often do. Your your wrists tend to hit or rest on your thighs. And another thing to really pay attention to, and this also applies sometimes to seiza. I don't know, but at any rate, whenever if, if your if your wrists, your hands are touching your thighs, to pay attention to not leaning on them, to not putting weight on them. Because again, that hurts your back. You know, it puts it, it, it just changes the relationship and it, it pulls you back out, and so that's another thing you know. When you sit, Saza, and you scan your body every so often and check, is your you know, your head fall forward or or um, did your mudra collapse? That kind of thing would just include: Am I leaning? Am I leaning on my legs? Because it's very it's hard not to. Let me put it that way. So that's something that I try to really pay attention to, and of course. And of course, um, where's my head? You know, is it balanced on my uh, on my spine? Is it leaning forward? I have, I know, I have a tendency to just not falling forward like you're going to sleep, but just forward a little bit. And at you know, after 40 minutes, that's hard on your back. So again, noticing, noticing. A uh, yoga teacher once said, you know, at the, at the base of your neck, there's a uh, vertebrae, I guess, that kind of sticks out, almost like a button. he said, you know, think of push it in. And that's another thing that just lifts you and, and, and lowers your shoulders. And I'm sure you heard Mel say many times, you know, he, he, think, he said, you know, I should be able to come by and uh, and move your elbow when you're sitting zazen, and, and it should be just your arm moving. Because if, if, if your whole body moves, it means that you're rigid and really holding yourself too tight. I think those are the things that I wanted to say I'm sure that a lot of this has been said and it was the whole discussion online was was interesting with people sort of I like to think of it as we have this ball and they're not two sides they're facets and we turned those facets well look at this piece so well, now look at this piece and I just decided that this this what I'm telling you is hard earned earned, and and it's it is it is not the same, sitting in a chair. It's The most comfortable position, I think, is cross-legged, probably full lotus, but I, I mean, I never could sit full lotus. And I can't sit cross-legged now, and so on. And So it, one must find a way to do zazen in a chair. And I, I told, does everybody know who Darlene Cohen was? Or is there anybody who does not know who Darlene Cohen was? Okay, she's she was a uh, wonderful Zen teacher who had severe rheumatoid arthritis, and she still she practiced with it. She was also a body worker, and she practiced at City Center. And I knew her. And one time she sat in a chair, and one time I said to her something. I said something very sort of this is my radical politics coming out. I said to her something kind of liberal, you know, like, Oh, well, it's, you know, it's all Zazen, it's the same. And she looked at me and she said, it's not the same. And it isn't, it's harder. And it's not impossible at all. It's entirely possible to settle and to experience that, um, samadhi of sushin, that kind of thing. It's entirely possible. And it's hard. So pat, pat yourself on the back if you're sitting, if you're sitting in a chair. And uh, for those of you who, who look at those the folks in chairs, sometimes think, wow, that must be so nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so do people have any questions or comments about that? Any of what I've just said? It's Charlie here. Hi, Charlie. Oh, good good morning, morning, Mary. Uh, Thirty-five years ago, we used to sit together in the back of the window. window. But I'm glad you mentioned Darlene Cohen. I have an echo echo here. Can you hear me? me? Yes. Can you guys hear me? We can hear you. Uh, In In the matter of of bodily pain, uh, Darlene suggested you find a place on your body that doesn't hurt, like your earlobe, or your chin, or someplace where you don't feel pain, okay and just put your attention there. Yeah, she did. I, um, I put my attention there and I send it blood. <laughs> I had this fantasy of these all these little uh, white blood cells going along and and going into my back and doing their job cleaning things up. It's encouraging. Charlie, you gave me a pin many, 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 many years ago and I was, uh, I did a workshop with some lawyers recently and it seemed appropriate, so I put it on, and it says, stop thinking and let things happen. <laughs> <laughs> I all asked right. Mel at the time if it was all right if I wore it, at Tassahara, if I wore it like on the inside of my robe, and he said, yeah, <laughs> please.
1: <laughs> well, I thought you like you it. And, uh, it. It
0: reminds me like of the bumper, bumper sticker saying, is it's not, not what you think. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Ross?
1: Thank you, Mary, for uh, letting you out. It's a pretty detailed uh, instruction for sitting in a chair and also dispelling the illusion that it's easy. It's easy in one way, but it's hard in another way. Um, do you uh, think about sitting in a chair during not that time, but just at work or casually, and when it's appropriate, maybe just to kind of Sit upright versus slouching, waiting for a Bart train or an office and all that. Do you talk to your students or your other um, lawyers about um, Zazen and they kinda of somewhat understated or
0: No, but that's a I will. <laughs> I will. I think that's I think that's good. I do I do talk to people about um, just daily sitting, you know, in a chair at work or eating or something when you have sciatica, which is that you take a, this is something I learned from Darlene, but this, this is too big and too thick, but like to take a, you know, a hand towel, the size, you know, this, this size kind of thing and roll it up, roll it up and then sit on it lengthwise so that it's, it's this way on the chair. And again, it takes the pressure off your sciatic notch. That's, that's my only but that's a, it's a good idea. Just to, it, it's all sazhen. Yes. Yes,
2: I'm a visitor, and I was wondering how about standing, because now in offices they are providing standing uh, rather than
0: sitting. People who so yeah. work long hours. or— Right. Well, I I think it's probably good to to alternate or to to you know to move any way you can. I can't. My knees. Don't, they don't do standing for long periods of time. They, they don't like going downhill either. Uphill's fine. But uh, I think. You, but again, you know, anytime we do anything, it's useful to to pay attention to our posture. Or when you're doing kinhin, when you're doing walking meditation, you know, you don't have to be looking down right in front of you. You can be standing up straight, and with you looking your gaze down a little bit, you know, you can look ten feet in front of yourself and. You know, you'll notice if there's a big rock there, or the pavement's all cracked or something. But it's it's just useful to keep your back engaged, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Yes?
2: So, apropos of what you were just saying in the question about standing, uh, an instruction I find myself giving people for uh, frequently is also something that Sojin so Roshi often said to me and to us which is you should always know where your feet are and so I when I'm sitting in a chair along with my back in the alignment I also pay attention to the contact that my feet have with with the ground and when I'm standing or walking uh, looking at the way my weight is balanced and just you know it's It's literal and it's also metaphoric because uh,
0: you should know (laughs) where you're standing. Right. Right. Well, and you should um, be grounded. Right. Be grounded. Right. Yeah. So let's see. I'm sorry, I don't know your name. You have a green shirt on and your your, your name, the names don't show up unless they're blanked out. So. Yeah.
1: um, (laughs) The name's Bob. Can you you hear me?
0: Yeah. 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 Um, I I injured injured my back back
1: about 12 12 years years ago. And I used to sit sit at at the Berkman Zen Center, Center, but I do a lot lot of rotating um, between between sitting sitting, um, on a chair and and then when when it it gets gets too too much, much, I'll lay down. Uh Uh-huh. I find, I find sometimes when I lay down, it has a has different quality
0: to it, uh, and sometimes I get sleepy,
1: sleepy. <laughs> but it's, but the, it's best the
0: best I can do. Well, that's that's the posture then. That's Sazen. You know who Judy Smith is? She's a quadriplegic. She's in a mechanized wheelchair. I think she comes sometimes. Anyway, um, Judy, what Mel was talk, lecturing about posture and, uh, and about assuming, assuming the posture. And Judy uh, raised her hand and said, well, what about me? Because she was, you know, she sort of tied into the wheelchair and, and there was a certain amount of kind of slumping and so on. And, and, and Mel looked her right in the eye and he said, I see you in the posture. And and I hope that you feel that you can lie down here if you need to. There are are ways that are, that um, Vicki Austin developed with somebody else and I can't remember who the other person was, but about when you lie down on your back that you have some intentionality to it. In other words, for example, that you, you keep your feet flat and your knees up if you can and that you hold a zafu on your belly just to have some intentionality and it helps with staying awake because it is (laughs) it's hard to sit to to lie down and and actually do zazen and not just nod off so yeah it's great that you do it that's That's great great. Uh, this, this right, right here, uh, I
1: have, um, uh, suggestions suggestions that have a suggestion They, uh, at, at one point, I, I thought they, they had, had a, a Cincinnati, 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 where they, they worked, worked with, with Paul, who had physical problems
0: issues. Do you Are know what Is there still a group? I'm sorry. What? He's saying that he they, heard about a, a, a group of people that worked with folks with limitations. Yes. And, uh, there isn't there one here? There, there was. There.
2: There's a new one, but I don't know that. Um, I don't know if it's it's exactly open. I think you'd have to re- request.
0: Who who do you who, who would one ask? Um. Is it more Mark? Chronic, more chronic health issues than physical. Yeah. Postural and. Zoom. Right. Like, oh, okay. so. Might not be the same, ah. to someone you know, maybe. you know what you might do is is, uh, Alan. A lot of people here can put you in touch with Vicki Austin. Sure.
1: Right. right.
0: So she could help you with with postures.
1: Right. right. I'll call Alan right there, then.
0: Okay. I want. I can't resist telling you an, an anecdote that a woman a teacher named Yvonne Rand told. She had hurt her back and she was having to lie down in the zendo. And uh, she was, she was uh, in her usual lying down posture. And she heard uh, Dick Baker, suddenly raised his voice and say, please stop snoring. <laughs> and she thought, you tell him, Dick. <laughs> and it turned out she realized she was snoring. <laughs> there was somebody else over here that I, I thought had their hand up. Before Alan, or about the same time as Alan, no? I caught it out of the corner of my eye. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. So, I've got about 10 minutes, I think. Is that what you think?
1: Uh, we go until eleven fifteen, so. Oh, okay. There's a you kind know, of maybe stopping the lecture about 11 or so, or the the door, no,
0: will put the striker, the time time reminder. But we up to 11:15. Okay, Okay, well I have five of 11 on my watch. I always say I'm going to get a, buy you guys a, a second clock that you could put right there facing the speaker. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a great idea.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great <laughs> idea.
0: <laughs> well, I mean the thing is that um it's nice when you're talking to be you know to be able to kind of gauge where you are but without like being obvious about it so if there's a clock that I could glance at without you realizing that I'm glancing at it cuz that can be distracting anyway so that's enough of that i think but i think i'll just stay here cuz i'm comfortable <laughs> And, and I really am, and I'm not leaning against the back of the chair, so.
2: I do have two uh, technical questions. Yes. First of all, where do you get the wedge?
0: You can get, this one I got online, you can get them at medical supply places. I don't know if that one up on Shattuck is still there. And you can get them at, like, foam shops, because yeah. a lot of people including, well, this, I had, this lives in my car, um, and I have a different one in the Zendo. Anyway, uh, so, uh, those are the places that I know of. The
2: other question I had is, how tall is your bench?
0: It's about sitting height.
2: You don't know what inches? No, but I have the, I have
0: the plans that, I uh, got great vow sent yeah, me. They're here. somewhere. Okay. And the guy that made it was a. It was a gift. He's a great, great, uh, really great woodworker. You know, there are no nails in it or anything. But he, he said he can't that keep that our, making them.
2: Is he the guy that made our uh, stand?
0: No, he made our stand. No, I, I don't, don't think so. I think so. Did he?
2: Somebody in your sangha.
0: Oh well, then it would be. Yeah. And and look at. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, he's not going to keep doing it, because he said it would. It would like he'd have to charge like five hundred dollars or something, which is just. So yes.
1: Mary, could you say a little bit about your work with the uh, attorneys? Oh. About um, adversarial relationships between you know the different the prosecutors and the defense lawyers and we who are not attorneys find ourselves in relationships that sometimes can arise into maybe adversarial or contentious. So how do you uh, work with your students as well as your uh, attorneys in these workshops to kind of express their point of view and also how to merge and blend and just kind of keep it grounded?
0: Can you, did you guys online hear that question? So go, if you need me to repeat it, do do the Uh other. I think, I think our, our general, general practice, practice is to, to have, have the questions,
1: questions repeated, repeated regardless.
0: Okay. Ross asked about that, my work with lawyers and uh, working with, I don't know, I'll say remaining grounded in an adversarial situation. And then, of course, that can apply to all of us in our daily lives. So uh, there's, there's, a, there's, one of the lawyers is online here, so (laughs) correct me. Correct me, Jeff, or you can add. That's a lot of what we work with. And one of the, the lawyers group is really about, I don't know, eight people, something like that, maybe a couple more. And I have a distribution list of about 50 and every single one asked to be on it, you know, after a workshop at Tassahar or whatever. Uh, but I guess they, they wake up, up when, on Sunday morning and think, oh, it's so beautiful out. Or it's so rainy, I'm going back to sleep. I don't know. But it's very, uh, well, I have to say, it's intimate, and people have been coming for quite a while and, and uh, varying amounts of practice. Some, I think, sit with that group once a week and that may be it. And most of them sit every day and some of them are more actively involved with Zen. And it is an occupational hazard to get tangled up and attached to a view and or your client and or disliking opposing counsel Sometimes for good reason. I mean, the hardest thing that that we we talk about sometimes. The hardest thing is when the opposing counsel or your co-counsel is uh, incompetent, and then it's very very difficult. You know, it's it's easier with somebody who's just saying, "Look, you know, what do you got?" and and uh, and you can you can work out something collaboratively. And I when I talk, talk to the bar about it, I call it anger management. But one of the things that I had to come to understand is that for some people, their response to a, that kind of a challenge is to withdraw, and that's true for lawyers too. We don't think about it. We think more about ones that um, tend to respond to aggression with aggression. It's very tempting. It's very easy. And I, it's something I know extremely well. So I, I had to learn that there are, there are because they think of lawyers as more aggressive, but not necessarily. Not everybody is a trial lawyer. And, and some people abdicate. And we're all of us, you know, and we all probably, sometimes we abdicate and sometimes we do, sometimes we respond with aggression when we feel thwarted or threatened. And it's pay attention to your body. I mean, that's, I think that's what I teach more than anything. Pay attention to your body. So Mel once told me years ago, um, you know, uh, he said, a good design student always knows where her breath is. And I thought, Oh my God. <laughs> but it, and it has been my practice ever since. And I don't always know, but I have, um, much more of an awareness than I used to, and if any moment—I mean, now I'm talking about it, so I'm aware of it. But, but at any time, you could ask me, "Where's your breath?" and it wouldn't take me—I wouldn't have to really stop and think about it. You know, I would—I would know pretty quickly. That, that... And so that's one of the things we work with: checking checking in with your body, and if—if if, and knowing your signals. You know, I when I am uh, angry, I get tight like right in my gut. And uh, I also, I talk faster, I talk louder, I start swearing. And I know when I kind of, you know, these little red flags go up, then I try to stop and give it some breath. And you can, well you can do that. You can take a breath and exhale completely in the middle of a conversation without it looking obvious. Maybe practice a little bit so you're not going Though that feels pretty good. But but you don't have to do that. You can just take a breath and just and just kind of let it out, you know, gather in and let it out. And settle down a little bit and remember. Remember what kind of person you want to be. Just remember what kind of person you want to be, and you don't want to be, presumably, you don't want to be hateful. You don't want to be hurtful. If you're being hurt, I mean, part of us wants to hurt back, but that's not really who you are. That's not what we really, how we really want to be but paying attention to the body and knowing where you carry your tension and emphasizing listening, deeply listening, because when people are being aggressive and hurtful, they're probably hurting also. And I'm reminded of uh, when, uh, I used to go out to the uh, women's prison in Dublin and with uh, with Alan and um uh, following after Maeley anyway we used to go out and lead a meditation group and what we would often do we'd sit and we then we'd check in and this one woman said you know I find it this practice has really helped me I was in the chow line today this morning and a woman came up to me and started screaming and yelling at me and swearing at me in the line. And before, I would have yelled back at her. But I didn't. I stopped and I really looked at her and I looked in her eyes and I saw how much pain there was in her eyes. So I, said, I responded to that instead of the words that were coming at me. And it, it completely changed. Now she is a great teacher. That that prisoner, but she noticed. Yeah,
2: um, I often um, find myself feeling disapproval mm. or disappointment, confusion, occasionally compassion toward people who are um, criminal prosecutors. Uh-huh. Who I see as kind of more directly uh, participating in a system that's sending humans into an extremely inhumane situation, and so I'm, I'm curious um, if you have any thoughts about that or conversations you've had with criminal I,
0: I do. I do. I mean, it's, it's ironic these days to find myself cheering on the FBI. <laughs> and the Department of Justice, and the prosecutors in New York, Manhattan. But uh, yes, I I I have similar feelings. I think I think the the biggest wake up call for me years. This was a long time ago. I was involved. I, I used to practice. I had a firm in Oakland. We represented unions. And I was involved with Oakland politics, and I knew. Uh, oh Lord. He was a—John George, he was a supervisor. Is that right? Yes. I don't think he was on the city council. Okay. And he was a liberal, progressive black politician. And uh, I was helping a friend of mine, a woman named Jenny Ryan, who uh, was—she was a judge here for many years, actually, but this was her first campaign she was running to be i guess a superior court judge and she was a very progressive lawyer and i know, knew, knew her for a long time and i knew john from political stuff and i knew his good friend i helped with his failed wilson riles jr with his failed election for mayor of oakland anyway so i arranged a lunch with jenny and Wilson and John, and me, for Jenny to seek his endorsement. And Jenny was running against an Asian man who was a district attorney. And she was talking, Jenny Rine a white woman, cisgender white woman. And uh, I don't remember what she said, but she said something about her opponent and she was sneering at him for being a district attorney. You know, just you, you, sort of the assumption that the person couldn't possibly be a fair-minded judge or whatever. I don't remember, I don't remember what she said. This was 35 years ago, something like that. Um, and John just lit into her. He really lit into her and he said, look, you don't know, you don't know this man. And for all you know, he is the first person in his family to go to law school, maybe even the first one to go to college. And he has debts, and he probably has to help with some of his family members. And this is a job he could get that paid decently and had benefits and so on, because it would have been hard for him to get a job in a big firm because of racism. I don't know if he said that, but it was clear that's what he meant. He said, "So, so you don't know him, and don't, don't disparage him. He doesn't have your privileges. He didn't have. He may very well not have had. I mean, I don't know if he knew the guy, but he, you know, it's very possible he didn't have your privileges, and that just um, knocked me back. I just had. I had not thought of it that way. I just, they're prosecutors. They put people in jail, and, and not that there are probably people that should be in jail, or should be. You know, I don't know. We should be protected from sociopaths, like in New York. Um, but you don't know. You don't know. So that's helpful to me to remember that that I I don't know all the all of them, and there are there are district attorneys that are fair-minded, and it's the it's not it's not they, it's the system that we have set up. It's our um, Implicit bias—it's our inherent bias. It's what is it? Oh yeah, it's well, it's a systemic racism. I was trying to see if I could work in um, critical race theory, <laughs> but but at any rate, it it is that. It whatever what that's pointing at. It is not critical race theory. It's it's implicit bias and uh, systemic bias. So that helps me to think I don't I don't know that person and so I want to try to kind of give them give him a chance. And and uh from my position, you know, I grew up in a um my dad taught community college, so it's not, we were like middle class, I guess. Um, but we we you know at the at towards the end of the summer, when he was off for the summer, we the last couple of months before his next paycheck. I guess paycheck would come maybe in October, and we were eating beans a lot. But that that was not suffering, you know, not like a lot of people suffer. But it wasn't like I so I come from a rel, I think a relatively privileged background. Anyway, that's that's what comes to me, and there was something I wanted to say. Um, Was there somebody?
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, I see. You know, your 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 hand is perfectly behind this post. You have to. Yes.
1: This is kind of going in another direction, but um, I think both with what Hosan said about knowing where your feet are, implicit in Ross's question was like, how do people stay grounded amidst conflict? And then you just kind of brought up. This idea of not knowing. And so, my question is: um, like, what does it mean to be grounded? I think in practice, I often find groundlessness, or that they're act, I'm actually not standing on stable ground. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm just curious: what does it mean to be grounded? Well,
0: I think it means to find your stability on no stability. We've been talking about uh, at Vallejo. We've been talking about uh, precepts and about about taking refuge. You know, you think of refuge as a safe sanctuary with like walls around you to protect you and so on. But for us, for what what is our refuge? Our refuge is in accepting that things change. Accepting that things are not solid. Accepting that. We grasp after solidity and safety, and make things worse for ourselves. the safety is in groundlessness, ultimately, yes. And we need to be grounded in it. I once said to somebody, was in, a, in a, I was congratulating a and, and this just came out, and I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say. What I said was, you're rooted in emptiness. <laughs> well, that's like a contradiction in terms. But it was what I, it was close enough to what I meant. And so that's what I say to you, that you're rooted in emptiness. And it's just, it's finding your home in nothing but change and nothing but connection. It's the accepting of it, of your true self. And it comes and goes, comes and goes. So welcome to the club. <laughs> we have a couple more minutes. Are there, are there any other, I don't see any more online. Yes, Mary. Um, the oh. other Mary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mainly want I to, just to say thank you for this spectrum that you've offered us this morning, all the way from the Nitty gritty relativity of our bodies, and how to manage them to the emptiness. So, uh, thank you. So uh, I, I forgot to repeat the question before, and then I'll repeat what Mary said. Um, what is your name? Margot. Margot asked about you know the, that that uh, we were talking about being being grounded, and that sometimes she. She sits hazen and she feels that there's no ground. There's groundlessness. We, we say there's not even an inch on the gro- an inch of grass on the ground, something like that. Um, and and I responded that that's you need to be grounded in that. And find your true home in emptiness, and that we fail. And I think I and I said, Welcome to the club. You heard what I said, anyway and then Mary said thank you for it's it's embarrassing thank you for a start you started out with this really nitty-gritty stuff and then we got all the way into uh, emptiness and she appreciated it is that is that good enough okay, good. <laughs>